those aren't those we don't we don't have those in scotch club because it's a blend this one i actually got because andy who like hosts all of the events he gave it to me but i didn't exactly remember so the next morning i texted him and i was like did you give this to me or did i steal it and i'm sorry and he was like (laughs) i gave it to you and i was like thank you then I stand by my other statement, which was thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's a it's a good one. It's the Glenmoray. It's the uh, what is it? The Chardonnay cast finish. It's good. That's I mean, good I don't choice. think that like proper whiskey drinkers think it's good, but I like you it. Know what? Who cares? You yeah. like what you like. Okay. I mean, that's. I will tell you that I liked the the Ardmore Legacy. That was the peaty notes up front mm-hmm. smooth on the way down those are my actual notes that i made on my phone mm-hmm. have you ever had uh ardmore distillery by any chance yes yes i have yes well ardmore has a seasonal or a varietal i need, I need to write it down and it is uh, it is it is like a peat monster thing or something i don't know it was very delicious so if, if this is your first time around the block listening to the Bible bitches, welcome to the block. Well, welcome to the block. Also <laughs> on the block is me, Laura. I'm your resident Baptist minister. And I am Sarah Hoff, and I am your resident agnostic. Laura and I, we met in Divinity School at Wake yeah, Forest. That's right. Home of the Demon Deacons. <laughs> so, yes. Okay. So, you know. If this is your first time around the block with us, uh, not only are we besties from Div School, we are, uh, we're the Bible bitches. We have a few drinks and we talk about the Bible through a feminist comedic lens. We like, we like to learn you good and have you laugh. Mm-hmm. That's how we do, mm-hmm. you know? And you know what? Guess what we're talking about today, Sarah? Them spirits in them people. Oh yeah. And there's nothing like throwing holy water on a peep. And throwing the Bible at him. I mean, I, love I guess to throw the Bible at people. You? You've never thrown the Bible at somebody. I don't think so. And I've also never been exercised. How about you? Have you have you had an exorcism? Dude, you know I have. I'm just so, setting you up, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, you are. You're setting me up. You're setting me up for a tall tale that's truthful. Not yeah. so tall. Super truthful. Super so, super short, in fact, and real. Super super fucked up is what it is. So, in, and it's like embarrassing, like it's an embarrassing story because, okay, so the story is that in undergrad, my first real boyfriend had just broken up with me and like total sidebar, he had done that thing where he like, you know, makes you break up with himself, like break up with yourself. Like he's like, I just don't know. And I was like, wait, are you breaking up with me? And he's like, uh, and I'm like, if you want to, mm-mm, mm-mm. anyways, mm, yeah, I was devastated. And it sent me into this whole, like, complete spiral into depression, and it lasted for months, and um, I couldn't put myself out of it. And it, and I was like, and I got, like, legitimately suicidal. And a friend of mine at the time, very well-meaning, very good guy, was like, you need God in your life. And he's like, and I'm going to take you back home to my mom, and she is going to, like take this out of you and so I'm like fine I'll do whatever because I was just like I was at that place you know like done so I go back 
I like go back with him and like some of our other friends to his house and like we spent the weekend up there and ate like some really delicious bread pudding and also his mom and her friend took me to the prayer room of their church and spent like three hours yelling at a demon in my face being like, Satan, we know you're in there. Come on out. And it was crazy. I mean, three, three or four hours of that, and I was like, maybe they're really it. Like, I was like, I'm going to play along. Maybe there is a demon inside me. I don't know. Also, just to get them to sh- shut up. Like, I, we, I can't do this anymore. But I can definitely feel empathy for people who get brainwashed because if somebody's just screaming at you for long periods of time, like, and that's all you're experiencing, like, what else? Like, stop. It's just like, <laughs> Oh, they ended up praying over me and then we went home and I was just kind of like, this was not correct. Like, this is not right. (laughs) Let's not do that again. Can we not do that? (laughs) I would not. I do not feel comfortable with the events that just transpired. (laughs) Yeah, that is, that sounds uh, awful and very different from the whole head spinning, green vomit, peeing in the floor stuff from horror films. That's just like genuinely like overwhelming and horrifying. Yeah, well, it only happened the one time, thank God. So Yes, that's good. No repeat experiences. <laughs> no. Yeah. I think it was actually shortly after that, because that was sort of the end of my senior year of undergrad, and I was already like kind of on my way out of Christianity, and that that did not help. Yeah, no. That did not make me want to like come back into the fold. <laughs> You're like, oh, that was a good experience. <laughs> Turns out I'm not less depressed now. I'm just a little weirded out that my brain is so easily susceptible to these things. I just kind of need a blanket and maybe maybe a nap. Need a nap? <laughs> yeah. And no more yelling. Just no more no yelling. No more yelling. No more no more yelling at like a like theoretical entity inside me that I like don't I don't know. Uh it was a lot. <laughs> that sounds awful. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad that you made it out of that and that you've had no more intense yelling experience like that. At least not How? to a demon inside of me. At least not to a, not to a demon. More just to you. <laughs> <laughs> to, me, to me, it's like justified. At least I know that they're like acknowledging my existence. <laughs> yeah. I see you, Sarah, and I'm yelling at you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. so um tell me how do you think that stacks up versus some of the exorcism accounts in the bible like so my exorcism experience i think is very different from the narratives that we hear you're right like in um these like horror movies even in the bible there's a lot more of a i think in the bible and in these horror stories like in in these in these fairy tales really there's a being or a human who we would now consider to be mentally, um, like mentally, I don't know, disease. Is that the right word? Like have a mental like issue. Have a mental illness. Yeah. Have, yeah. A mental illness. Like mm-hmm. we would now see those people as having a mental illness. Whereas then it was like, they were possessed by the devil, which is a very different. I mean, like what I was performing at the time or what I was exuding at the time was a different kind of mental illness than like what you might expect from somebody who has, who's like quote unquote 
possessed by the devil or whatever. So this is where we get into the story of of Legion in Mark chapter 5. And we're really going to focus on verses 1 through 20. The story we're talking about generally in your Bible would be called uh, Jesus Heals the Gerasene Demoniac. And perhaps the most disturbing and spine-chilling story in the Gospels, um, and it depicts uh, Jesus exercising uh, demons named Legion as a group, they're called Legion, from a disturbed Gerasene man who lives among the tombs in the cemetery. He's ostracized and he's suffering from an identity crisis. So Jesus drives Legion into a herd of swine that ran off the cliff into the sea before being asked to leave by the native folks. The cured demoniac becomes a Gentile disciple for Jesus, spreading the story throughout the Decapolis. At first, this story seems to be merely kind of like an eerie, maybe detailed healing story. But on closer examination, it seems that there are some political undertones of Jesus casting off Roman authority and power, which challenge traditional social and political rules with his own authority and power in the Gentile land. So, so we, you know, we know we have Jesus here who is a uh, first century Palestinian Jew, right? And he wouldn't be a citizen. You've got uh, Rome who is treating Israel as like a puppet state. And so there's this kind of sense of, right, Israel versus Rome. Israel, I think we've talked about this in the past, Israel is monotheistic, um, Rome is polytheistic, There's uh, and, and Rome is oppressing Israel, you know, for multiple reasons. And so there's this sense of kind of Rome is this oppressor. So we don't really know, uh, you know, we could say this is an allegory, we could say it's, it's, it's some sort of story. We don't know what parts of the story actually happened, what didn't happen, what parts might be meshed with some sort of myth. We do know that there is a long history in the Gospels of Jesus, of Jesus doing healing. So Jesus has this reputation as a healer. So I'd like to approach the text today very imaginatively and kind of go with what does it look like, right? When Jesus is confronting this very scary thing. It's pretty cool. So like first, can we just like back up for a second? Mm-hmm. Start out at the beginning where Jesus is, has tamed the Sea of Galilee during this like huge storm. And so he's kind of riding high. Like this was a big miracle for him. Everybody's like very much in awe of him. And when he he's said, like Rocky, he's like Rocky. <laughs> and, and, yeah. Imagine if somebody had been there during Hurricane Katrina and like just like chilled it all out. It would have been cool. Then, so he steps out of the boat in Gerasene in Mark 5, 2 through 5, and states, which states, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke into pieces, and no one who had any strength could subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on mountains, he always howled and bruised himself with stones. (laughs) We have state-of-the-art effects here, Sarah. Um, (laughs) Pretty spooky, right? I mean, it just sounds like you're you're like run-of-the-mill mental illness. But think about it in Scooby-Doo terms, Sarah. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, if Scooby-Doo has taught me anything, it's that like I shouldn't trust the people around me. I'm I'm, right now. I'm wearing a mask. You you have no idea who I am right now. (laughs) 
right. So looking back on this with our 21st century lens, okay, right? He's probably suffering from mental illness. But in first century Palestine, no vocabulary can describe that, right? It's, it's a demon, right? So it's very creepy. This, this person is hanging out in a cemetery, and he's like a zombie-like dude living in the graveyard, howling and self-harming. And I want to point to the phrase in Mark 5, 2, a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. In this time and culture, cemeteries and dead bodies were thought of in first century Palestine as unclean. The Israelites set themselves apart in a lot of ways. They were monotheistic, right? They only worshiped one God. They had a lot of rules like no eating shellfish. Some of these will still persist today. Like if you've ever heard of keeping kosher, that's how food is prepared to a biblical code. A part of the holiness code is burying a body quickly and purifying oneself after touching a dead body. If you violate this code, you are unclean and you need to go through ritual purification to be restored to community. So this dude is possessed and unclean in the eyes of the community because he's hanging out in the city of the dead, right? He is hanging out in a cemetery. I mean, I've been in Ar- like I lived in Arkansas and I've seen <laughs> meth and this is, this is not so dissimilar. Just it's- saying. It's it's just like Bob in your backyard, right? (laughs) Yeah. You just got to shoo him away with a broom. Go away, Jim Bob. Maybe some pellet guns. You know, whatever. (laughs) Whatever. Anyways, Jesus yells at the man, come out of the man, you unclean spirit, which is what the ladies did to me. And (laughs) next. It's also what people scream at me during my period. (laughs) And next, the demon-possessed man runs towards Jesus and bows. And in Mark 6, 7, shouts at Jesus, What have you done with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Sometimes I shout that at God, too, but that's just because I'm me. Well, remember the first time you met me, you said the same thing. Come out of Laura, you unclean spirit. And then it turns out it was just me on my period. (laughs) And that's... What began a lifelong friendship (laughs) exists till this day. (laughs) It's so strong, Sarah, so strong. (laughs) Jesus then is like, maybe I should ask for a name. And then the demon-possessed man says spookily, my name is Legion, for we are many. Just as a clarification, they're not Metallica. This is prior. (laughs) This is prior to Metallica. Legion is so metal. He's so metal. So So anyways, what's really interesting here is that Legion has um, a few different meetings. At this time, Israel is occupied by Rome, and Rome and Israel are not on good terms. Rome is all like, hey, just worship the emperor. And Israelites are like, no, we're good. Thanks, though. So Legion to us sounds like a fuck ton of people. But legion at the time means a Roman unit of soldiers comprised of 6,000 men. However, it could also denote a smaller battalion of 2,000 men. Now, keep in mind the number 2,000 because it'll come up again. I'm going to keep in your mind. Will you keep in my mind the number 2,000? Because it might come up again. I feel like we're doing like revelation numerology right now. Like, <laughs> the end of the world is going to be 2,000 plus 6,000. <laughs> And then you divide that by seven and you get the year that say that Jesus will come back. Right. But then you have to uh, multiply that by the mark of the beast, <laughs> which is 69. 
Oh, mm. such low hanging fruit. Okay. I know. <laughs> the best mark of the beast. Okay. So with all that 2000 running around, I just had a flashback to Y2K. Do you mark? know how much food my mom had stored up? So much food. She gave me a $100 bill and was like, put this in a envelope in your glove compartment and don't spend it. Oh, don't you need like some sort of other currency like food or yeah. booze or like gold? Actually, I think gold's pretty pointless. Like it would have to be like something you could barter with. Yeah, it would have to be like gas or rice, I feel like, because those two things yeah. are things that could last a long time. Probably rice in the long run because rice doesn't have an expiration date, whereas right. gas does. Yeah, I've seen enough Walking Dead. It's yeah. all about bartering. Okay, so uh, <laughs> covering the bases. Little um, PSA, get yourself a um, shortwave radio, <laughs> shit ton of rice, and maybe some iodine tablets. Yeah, maybe maybe a couple gallons of gasoline because you're going to want to need to, you know, get somewhere where zombies aren't, which is <laughs> not in the city. Not in the city. Yeah, get the fuck out of the city. <laughs> get away. All right. So uh, Mark 511, now they're on the hillside, it's a great herd of swine, and they were feeding. And the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he, meaning Jesus, gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, oh, Y2K, um, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. So we've got demons rushing into a herd of swine that run off the bank into the sea and get drowned right Mm -hmm. which is what happened to me when i was in that prayer room and that's why i don't eat meat how many swine died in that exorcism like a really uncomfortable number (laughs) anyways just to recap we know that 2000 are in a roman battalion or a small legion We know that the demon-possessed man and also the pigs are considered unclean in Israelite culture, though pigs are sacred to Romans. Boars are a symbol to at least three different legions we know of that had a boar, including one, Legion X Fratentis, who crushed... Nerd alert! Legion (laughs) X Fratentis. Maybe did a deep dive on this, Sarah. (laughs) Who crushed Legion, I'm sorry, who crushed Jewish revolts in first century CE Israel, corresponding to the period this text was written in, 60 CE. So yeah, I mean, I might have done a deep dive on legions that exhibited the boar. Whatever, whatever, it's cool. It's cool. I didn't spend too much time in my basement. Um, (laughs) So when the uncomfortable amount of swine rushed over the embankment and were lost at sea, we kind of have to take a pause and go, whoa, what, what, what happened here, right? We almost hear Old Testament echoes um, of Exodus when we see like the swine are kind of rushed off the embank, uh, embankment and engulfed in the water, right? Then we think about Pharaoh's army being lost in the Red Sea. So there's a sense of liberation that happens in both, right? This freedom from Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army, this freedom from this demonic presence that might be echoing Rome and Rome's army, right? The demons cry to be left in the territory, not the man, and that shows their desire to stay in unclean land. 
It could also indicate the refusal of Roman troops to cease occupation of Palestine. Yet Jesus has the power to cleanse. And this shows that the swine, with the swine kind of being thrust, the, the demons being thrust into the swine, that you know his power can't be contained. Jesus can cleanse the ritually impure and make the sacred profane. And we see him constantly doing this. He's, he's constantly healing the sick, on the Sabbath, or going back and forth between unclean and clean, he's always blurring those boundaries between what is clean and unclean, showing that 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 doesn't really he doesn't really he doesn't have to live by anybody's rules. <laughs> he's so edgy. He's basically Connor Obers. Um, anyways, that was like that was like a way old school joke. That was like, like a, that was like two thousand five, right there. I, I like know. it. Two thousand five called. They want their bowl of oranges back. <laughs> Ring, ring. <laughs> Anyways, next, we learned that the witness told people what had happened, and the people came running. Mark 5.15 states, they came to Jesus and saw the demonic sitting there, clothed. And demoniac. His, demoniac. The demoniac sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the d- demoniac and the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave the neighborhood. So the unclean demoniac is made clean. He's no longer in the unclean cemetery and the unclean spirit is put in the unclean pigs and run off the cliff. So he's restored to his community. But why do they want Jesus to leave them if he's the hero? Maybe they're afraid of his power. Maybe they're afraid he will go into unclean spaces, which isn't normal. Maybe they just don't want any trouble like any townie and any Western ever made, ever. So, I mean, like, it's also interesting that after Jesus cleanses the Gentile land and crosses back into his own territory, like, kind of, quote, unquote, he transgresses more purity boundaries. The next story involves Jesus healing a hemorrhaging woman and resurrecting a dead girl. Death and blood are unclean according to the holiness code. And so Jesus is just like fucking blasting through that, just being like, fuck you all. Right. According to Eugene Boring, quote, the meaning of the story cannot be reduced to merely an allegory of liberation from the Romans. Its horizon is broader than that. Within a cosmic and eschatological framework, meaning this kind of like big change that happens, right? This this huge kind of giant change that that sort of shift, this giant shift, right? But it can hardly have been read in Mark's time without political overtones. The emphasis then seems to be ritual cleansing exacerbated with political undertones, resulting in the first declaration to Gentiles that Jesus is Lord. The political elements of the story enhance the message of this text and would have allowed the Palestinian audience to identify with the plight of Roman occupation. The ultimate goal of the author of this narrative is to exhibit Jesus' power through narrative devices and careful use of stories he gathered for his account. But what about all the pigs? Jesus may have symbolically exercised unclean, the unclean or the symbol of Rome in the story, but Jerusalem was still defeated by Rome in 70 CE. I, you know, it's, what about all the pigs is a question I ask myself at the end of every day. <laughs> <laughs> just like but, uh, like munching down some bacon what about all the pigs <laughs> i think this text has some moral imagination right rome terrorized israel and they wanted rome gone 
And there's a kind of sweet karma that Rome fell due to overextending boundaries and also internal corruption, which we see as being issues that the same issues that Israel has with Rome, right? Bottom line, this text is weird and puzzling, yet it should be read with an eye towards the understanding of the history and culture of first century CE Palestine. The story is ultimately not meant to disturb or frighten, I think, um, but to show that Jesus will cross all these boundaries of cleanliness and uncleanliness and go into uh, cemeteries with howling dudes to restore someone to their community. Uh, The radical love pierces forbidden lands occupied by colonial authorities to heal the very symbol of marginalization, a raving, ostracized, kind of madman, really, isolated in the mountainous tombs by the sea. No. no. Sarah's not buying it. No, I'm not buying it. Because, I mean, so, like, yeah, like, that's a really idealistic interpretation, but that's not how it's actually being spoken about or addressed in any, like, in any modern conservative Christian churches that I know of. And that's, like, assuming that it's being addressed at all. I mean, it's still there and it's used in conjunction with prosperity gospel for sure in this way that like, you know, you have to be pure of spirit and you have to believe hard enough and God will reward you with material goods. And if you are not believing hard enough, it's because there is like a demon or Satan inside you. I do think that's very interesting because I do think that I I almost see the American church. I know that's big C and it's kind of hard to lump everybody together, but I guess conservative, some strains of conservative church in America, I'll say that. that it's not just some strains. It's like most strains. I, mean, I don't know about exorcism. Well, yeah. I mean, like I wouldn't say exorcism, but maybe that, mm, I don't know. I mean, I think prosperity gospel is infecting a lot of strains. For like, sure. Absolutely. But I also, I don't know that, this idea of exorcism is like, it was never something that was dismissed or like thought of as crazy when I grew up. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was never something that like you, that people sought outright. It was supposed to be that kind of like speaking in tongues kind of thing where like if the Lord bestowed it upon you, Mm -hmm. but um, you weren't supposed to seek it. I don't know. My understanding is that it's way more prevalent in other cultures. But and that the meaning is different in other cultures than it is in ours, right? So I guess as an American, I'm most concerned with why why it's happening here. What what is that about, and how is it being used? Kind of like as you say, in conjunction with prosperity gospels in ways that are really unhealthy. Um, because I can't really speak about it in other contexts. For my context, which is a more progressive church. To free us up to talk about this in moral imagination is pretty great. I cannot see my church ever performing an exorcism. I I don't think that that is something that we would ever do. Partially because we really uh, heavily give validation to science and to mental health care professionals and and all that. So I think, I mean, I think that kind of has to go back to the level of education you harbor in, in your church. Do you take... Uh, religious education seriously. And if you do in the church, right, we should be talking about the historical context for these things. Well, and so what, what, would, what does it mean to read uh, a story about exorcism and then try to imagine what that means in a first century context in a completely different culture? 
Well, what do you mean by religious education? Well, for me, it means like, okay, so, you know, if I'm designing a Bible study and we're working our way through, I don't normally do it this way. I don't normally like read a book. We don't like read a book. We, we kind of, with the young adults, we've done things where we'll like, what are some things you want to know about? right? We crowdsource it. And then whenever people make a list and then we talk about it. So if somebody was like, I want to know more about exorcism, then I would probably use this text and then we'd talk about it and we'd delve into it. And I'd say, okay, we, I do a, very much what we did today and kind of give some context and talk about it. And then we'd sit around and, and chat and be like, let's imagine what it would be like to be Jesus and to be this guy and to be in this situation and to be in first century Palestine, what are some of the difficulties that they would be facing, right? Well, but that's like that, I mean, like arguably that would be its own specific kind of religious education. Like there are different kinds of religious education that are happening. I mean, like when I was growing up, it was all about apologetics, which was a statement of like argument against these different evolutionary truths, essentially. And so that was a kind of religious education. I don't think it was truthful, but I want to be careful about what we talk about when we talk about religious education. Well, I think, you know, it's, this is in the synoptic gospels, uh, which I mean by, you know, it's something that's repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, John kind of went off on his own, um, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'll say that you should love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, which means that we use our brain, which means that we use the scientific method, which means that we use all the tools that we have at our disposal. And so I think that means we have to use a mixture of science and literary critique and historical critique, right? So religious education has to, if it's going to be good, has to engage all of those things. So it can't just be, it can't just happen in a vacuum of I read this text and I imagine whatever the hell I want. It's got to be, okay, I have a good grasp of my history of what what's going on in first century in this area. I have a good idea about maybe how the Bible came together, right? I have a good idea of like a, a, at least a basic understanding of science. And I'm going to mesh all those things together in order to engage this. It can't just happen in a vacuum. It can't be like, ah, oh, Jesus is clearly a magician because I like magicians. <laughs> like, no, we can't do that. <laughs> so I think, I think we can have, you know, very poor vacuum-like religious education, or we can have very good religious education that activates all of our senses and really tries to do it justice. Just like we would anything else. You know, I mean, if we were reading Shakespeare in high school, we'd be writing an essay about what Shakespeare was doing and what he was critiquing. No, no, I disagree. I mean, like, theoretically, I want to agree. But what happens in Shakespeare is a text that you can leave behind. You can, like, read it and you can be like, oh, those are interesting themes and I can see that in modern life. But it doesn't hold the same weight that the Bible does for people in that context. But we, but we critique it more than we would the Bible. We do critique it more than we would the Bible because it doesn't have that same kind of an errand. Um, it doesn't hold the same kind of reverence. It doesn't. And that's, I guess that's my problem. I and mean, that's, that would be my critique of American Christianity is that um, I had the privilege of studying under rabbis 
And part of the Jewish tradition is to question the text. You question the text, you spend time with it, right? And so, in you know, from a Jewish perspective, why is it that you give more weight in terms of questioning to Shakespeare and all these other texts versus what you do with, with the Bible? Because you just put it on a shelf and you say, well, I can't touch it. It's inerrant. Yeah. Um, I don't think the Bible's inerrant. Shock, right? I think it was written by a bunch of people who were trying to wrestle with this stuff and, and figure out, you know, what's up. And so it's, it can be approached, it can be critiqued, and we should be critiquing it. And we are critiquing it, right? So well, I think- you and I are. I don't you know and I, yeah, I meant you, <laughs> you and me, not like the entirety of the church. But I think you have to approach it that way. I also think, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with the authority question, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't walk into a room with a group of people and say, this is the truth that I have learned and I'm bestowing it upon you, right? I, I even though my- what I have learned might be knocking up, hopefully, on some, you know, uh, more informed version of what may have happened. I feel like we have learned from our own childhoods, uh, you, you and mine, with the church, that, uh, that that's not a healthy thing to do. So instead, why not provide a little bit of information, um, which is generally what I do, and then I crowdsource it. And I'm like, okay, so just like I crowdsource, I tend to crowdsource what you want to study in the fall, right? Then I say, like, Okay, here's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to give you like a 10 minute spiel. Like, to, what do you, what do you think? Like, what do you think? Is this is this BS? Like, what what might you add? What might you subtract? What might you what what are what do you think about it? Yeah. Um. And they're you know they're because I'm I'm very much a Baptist. I think yeah. experience is uh, a huge part of it. So I don't I I think if they have some sort of life experience of exorcism, just like you do, or there's something else to add to it that that only enriches the text. It doesn't take away from it. So my version isn't right. It's just a, it's just a point of view. I think that's kind of how we have to approach it. It's got to be very democratic. I mean, if you're truly a Baptist, you're very democratic. And I think that's how we have to approach it. It's like, let's just, let's talk about this, you know, and we're not going to come to a resolution, but we're going to talk about it. And we're going to wrestle with it. It's like a super old school backslash super new school approach to baptism. And I like it. I mean, that's oh, just like yeah. how it started, but it's also not where it is. But I like where you're taking it. I like where you're oh, taking it. I like to kick it old school, like 400 years old school. <laughs> yeah, you do. I'm really damn old school. <laughs> All right, you guys. Thanks for sticking with us. Yeah. 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 Let us know if you've had any exorcisms or, or any, yeah. yeah, I would love to hear your stories. Yeah. Um, like any, actually like any, like we would love to hear any interesting stories about you and your thoughts on the Bible. Maybe we'll read them on air. We don't know. If you want. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah. Um, and so we should probably tell you how to hit us up. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Bible bitches. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, we have a Bible bitches fan page. Uh, you can email us on Gmail at uh, BibleBetches with an E because yeah. Gmail's a little prudy. It's cool uh, at gmail.com. Um, and tell us, tell them about our host website, Sarah. Yeah. So you can also check us out on um, Engaged Gaze, which we love. It's uh, Engaged G A Z E, Engaged Gaze. Dot com, um, which is awesome. You um, please also check out uh, Yo Eve. She just dropped a new album. She very graciously is letting us use her um, song TNT for our intro and outro. And of course, 
where would we be without Aaron Smith, who is Aaron Doodles on Twitter. He is designing our logos and our t-shirts and all our stuff, and we love him. Yeah, we're going to have some merch because we're doing, uh, we're going to be in person for the first time at Wild Goose. Yes. Google It'll it. It'll be amazing. Be there. Find us. You better. We'll be pop it. We'll be doing like little pop up podcasts. Yeah, for your listening pleasure. It'll be great. Um, and if you have no idea how you found us, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, and Stitcher, mm-hmm. and SoundCloud. Anything else? Did we, did we leave anything else out? No. Also, right. do like I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at our Gmail account. You guys check us out. Email us. I actually do look at it. Email us. I think people like the Twitter. Yeah, and people really like this. I mean, it makes more sense. It makes more sense. Like, I, I rarely ever write an email. No. To, like, you know. Outside of work. Outside, outside of work. work. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Work, work in church. That's it. Uh, all right. Bye, uh, you guys. All right. Have a good one.